Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. We're going to start out how we always start out by thanking the people who subscribe to our Patreon. Not this past week, but we are still playing catch up from the subscribers. From when we took July off. Yeah. So we'll read a handful of these and we'll just, we'll get current when we get current. Yeah. So we have Kelly, Christy, Chase, Christy, Alicia, Mary, Brittany, Joanne, Mary Kay, John, Lydia, Taylor, Rika, Caitlin, Anna, Tamsin, Sandra, Megan, Mandy, Michelle, Melanie, Chelsea, Emily, Juniper, Rachel, Martha, Gwendolyn, Star, Ava, Stephanie, and Bunny Mom. Bunny Mom? I'm going to end on Bunny Mom because that's really cute. Very cute. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Desi, what do you got for us this week? Okay. So someone recently sent us an email suggesting that we start doing TV versus reality, which we have not done yet. They suggested the story of the church that inspired an aspect of True Detective season one. And although I do want to get to that one day, I just wasn't ready for a deep dive into satanic ritual child abuse. My first show back (laughs) seemed like a little heavy (laughs) since we had taken off, you know, I don't know. I definitely want to get to it. There's also not a book. I did look into it. So it was like a lot of article reading and like it it would be a more difficult uh, case to get into, but definitely uh, something I'm interested in. Wow. So it's on the list now, um, but I did find, I did start looking for other TVs shows that were inspired by real life crime, not necessarily like TV movies of the week or Lifetime movies, but kind of more uh, subtle things. That's what I was sort of looking for. And not Law and Order. Yes. Like I didn't want to pick one of those because right. that's its own specific thing, I think. Yes. So I found another TV show that was inspired by a real life crime, and that is uh, season four of American Horror Story. And this is the one that is set in the world of carnival sideshows, in particular, the character played by Evan Peters, who is loosely based on Grady Stiles Jr., who performed under the name Lobster Boy. Now, yes. didn't we have Lobster Boy on our original master list, or we discussed? I think so, because it's kind of, uh, he's... He's been sort of hinted at and sort of inspired other... Uh, there was like a long list of other things he had inspired. Freaks. I think I don't know if he inspired that because he's after that movie. But it's sort of in... I remember... I I don't know if we ever discussed doing a movie versus reality of freaks. Maybe we will in the future. Right. Anyways, it's a topic that I have always kind of been interested in. Uh, 
I, as a kid, I liked like, I had like the Ripley's books, right? like where it would be like the tallest man and all that kind of stuff. So, and I, I did like this American horror story, uh, season. Um, I know some people don't love the show or I think it's hit or miss, but I thought this was one of the better seasons. So, um, yeah. Anyway, the book I used for this episode is called Lobster Boy, The Bizarre Life and Brutal Death of Grady Stiles Jr. It is by Fred Rosen. I also watched one of my old-time faves, City Confidential. <gasps> love it. <laughs> that was one of my favorite. That was like one of my first true crime shows that I loved. Yeah. Um, A&E's City Confidential. I also watched a show. It was like really short. It was called True Nightmares, like an anthology show. It was really bad. This the episode on Grady was like eight minutes, and it was very bad reenactments. And also, I could tell they just kind of it wasn't very accurate. Like yeah. they put things together and placed things in a weird way. They had names wrong. It was very bizarre. But it was only eight minutes, and it was comically bad. So I just watched it anyway. Yeah, it might have been an AMC show or mm. something. I did get this thing called um, A and E True True Crime Pass. Another thing that well, I have a week trial, to. so we'll see if I remember because I wanted to watch this City Confidential really bad. <laughs> the thing I love about City Confidential, I may have said this before, is they go in depth into the town where the crime took place. Ooh. And in this case, it's very interesting. Uh, I'll get into that in a little bit. So before I got into Grady Style's story, I wanted to give a little background info on Carnival Sideshow's history and the town where the majority of our story takes place, which is Gibsonton, Florida. So you know I'm all over that Florida. <laughs> yeah. It was giving me crazy. Uh, I was like, damn. So the history of sideshows, um, or what was sometimes referred to as exhibitions, go back to at least the medieval times when people with more unusual medical conditions were often displayed as entertainment for royalty and the rich and powerful before becoming more available to the masses. And it sort of the first place it became popular was in taverns and on fair fairgrounds in the 18th century. By the 19th century, both in Europe and the U.S., they were finally something that had become a successful, like commercially operated enterprises. People were now making a lot of money from this stuff, reaching the height of their popularity in the late 19th century and the early half of the 20th century. Now, these presentations often included, as I mentioned, people with unusual uh, conditions, such as being extremely tall or extremely small, people with rare disease uh, and medical conditions, as well as um, people that were just heavily tattooed and pierced, or people performing outrageous acts such as fire eating, sword, sword, sword swallowing, or being what they referred to as a human blockhead, which is the guy who would like literally hammer a nail into his nasal cavity. Yeah. Um, so obviously... <laughs> this stuff is very dehumanizing uh, behavior to kind of put people on display like this. Exploitative. Exploitative. The showmen and promoters did not always have these people's best interests at heart. It was all about, you know, making a ton of money off of them. People were referred to as being of an unknown race or culture just to make things more sensational. Sometimes people were labeled with names that compared them to animals, like Jesus. the snake man or the wolf boy, or as with Grady, the lobster boy, like just like no concern for like what that would feel like or how dehumanizing it was. Now, these performers would be presented with these exaggerated and dramatic stories by a showman who would often give us the lowdown on these people. Um, 
they had this presentation where they would just give you this rundown of who this person was. And obviously it's all lies and written and made up. Uh, and then they would dramatically reveal maybe the person or their, um, the, the body part that they wanted to feature as being, um, odd or whatever. So, and then the people would sometimes be open for questions and the audience would just ask them very, you know, blunt and rude, oftentimes rude questions. So one of the first showmen to really elevate this type of exhibit was P.T. Barnum. He really hit the jackpot with one of his early performers, General Tom Thumb, who was 25 inches tall and was incredibly talented. He did imitations of people like Napoleon. Like He actually was a talented entertainer as well. He even performed once for Queen Victoria, which was like a huge publicity boon for P.T. Barnum. And he was getting paid very well. He was getting $150 a week. This is in the late 1800s, so that's a ton of money. And when he retired, he retired to one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York City. And he even owned a yacht. Like Damn. He was very well off in part of society. Like He was not like most of these performers were looked down on and feared, he definitely was not one of those people. Another big performer for P.T. Barnum was, it was one of his most popular and highest grossing acts, and that was the tattooed man, George Constantinus. He claimed to be a Greek Albanian prince. All of this is a lie. He was raised in a harem. He had 338 tattoos, which completely covered his body. And his story that he kind of made up was that he was on a military expedition, was captured, and his captors gave him the choice of being chopped up into little pieces or to receive all of these tattoos. I mean, obviously, (laughs) this is not true. (laughs) Right. So um, he was also famous for his sideshow hoaxes. His number one famous hoax was that he hired a blind and paralyzed former slave for $1,000 and claimed that the woman was 160 years old. She was actually obviously 80 years old, not 160. But this was a lie that brought him in a profit of $1,000 per week. Like people just wanting to see this 160-year-old woman. I've heard about this poor woman. Yeah. It's just gruesome. No, it's sick. Now... Um, in, in the UK, there was Tom Norman. He is kind of the British P.T. Barnum. And he famously brought Joseph Merrick, who was known as the Elephant Man, to the public eye. And this is one of the first major examples of a huge backlash toward this kind of cruel display. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. It is heartbreaking. Uh, Norman obviously denied he was exploitive, saying these exhibits gave people an opportunity to earn money and live independently. But that's just isn't the case. There were some success stories, but that's just not the case for all of the people who are doing this. Um, They're not all Tom Thumb getting this huge amount of money. Other big acts you might know are Chang and Ang, as well as Daisy and Violet Hilton, Hilton, who were also an inspiration for characters in this American Horror Story um, season, as well as the subject for a Broadway musical called Sideshow. Now, I mentioned that this backlash was starting to happen as the nude century sort of came into being. Obviously, I mean, looking back, we all see how inhumane this is to put people on display like that just to have people kind of leer at them. Uh, In addition to that, as scientific discoveries sort of advanced, a lot of these differences were no longer mysteries. We knew medically what was happening uh, and what was behind them. So whereas people used to look at them with fear and disdain about what was going on, now they were like, oh, shit, this is like 
you know, they this, looked at them with right. more sympathy. Like it right. was not, yeah. So more compassion and laws actually began to be, be passed that was restricted these types of display. Now, as I mentioned with Tom Norman, there were people who were defending these sideshows, arguing that they gave economic opportunity to people who might otherwise have trouble finding work. And that is, I don't want to say it's true, but that was a problem for people with disabilities back then. There weren't laws in place to protect them. Right. Or, um, you know what I mean? Like, they might not have gotten jobs. That right. is true. I don't know that this is the alternative <laughs> that's the best, but like, right. in, in a way, that was true. Uh, it also offered them a sense of community with people who maybe understood their struggles more. Um, so, you know, they pointed to those things when they were defending these um, sideshows. Obviously, um, even the most famous performers, though, were treated like shit by show and our museum owners. They didn't have much respect. They had grueling travel schedules, work hours, and performers were ripped off all the time and just abused by these people in charge. Even someone who was famous, like Fedor Jeftichu, who was known as Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, so a very famous performer during this period, he sometimes would perform 23 shows during a 12 to 14-hour day, which is just an insane schedule. Right. So public opinion began tilting more in favor of um, finding these distasteful and exploitive, and this is part perhaps best seen when the 1932 movie um, Freaks was released. And this is about a traveling um, sideshow or freak show. Um, They used real life um, performers in this film, which really provoked a lot of public outcry. The film was basically canned and was like locked away into obscurity until it was finally re-released in 1962. Two of the stars of this film are Daisy and Violet Hilton, Uh, so one thing the film did show was the close knit community. These performers often form working in these carnival situations, uh, not just the sideshow performers, but all of the carnival workers, the people who run the rides, um, just like all of the people who put these together, living this kind of nomadic seasonal existence, and then spending the off season in communities where the locals were all carnies as they, they refer to themselves. And this is, um, how the town of Gibson, Gibsonton came to be. So one of the popular acts from the early 20th century was a man named Al Tomaney. He was billed as the world's tallest man. He was supposedly eight feet, five inches tall. That's wow. disputed, but that regardless, he's a very tall man. And he married a woman named Jeannie who was two feet, five inches tall. They began performing together as the world's strangest married couple. Now, after retiring from the carnival life, he and Jeannie settled in an ex-circus community called Giants Camp in Gibsonton, Florida. He really liked it there. He set up um, a fishing kind of camp for people, and it really became a place for carnival workers to settle for the off-season because they really work a short period of the year. All winter long, they would come to Gibsonton and live. Um, this quickly grew from a population of just in the hundreds to into the thousands, and it was all carnival workers living in this community. This town is located on the Florida's Gulf Coast by Tampa and Sarasota, and it's a real circus town. Like they even have unique circus zoning laws because I think um, what's the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey? They're like located, I think, in Sarasota. Like that's like their home base. Mm-hmm. So they have all these weird um, circus zoning laws. So residents of Gibsonton can actually have elephants in their front yard today. 
I don't know if it still exists today, <laughs> but up until like the nineties, yeah. yes. Um, they can have circus trailers. Like they often have those, whatever those rides just sitting in their yard, like not operational, obviously yeah. the post office in Gibsonton had counter heights for different sized people. Uh, Cause their residents were, they had giants, they had smaller people. Like, so they had all of this different uh, types of counters in their post office. And like, you would often see performers doing their off-season jobs in Gibsonton, such as a pair of conjoined twin sisters who ran a local fruit stand. So oh. it really was just this like community of these off-season workers yeah. making a life there, yeah. which is uh, very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so in 1944, one of their future famous residents moved into town with his family, and that person was seven-year-old Grady Stiles Jr., now, Grady Stiles Jr. was born on June 26, 1937, into a family of carnival performers. According to Grady Stiles Sr., the Stiles family had a history of ectrodactyly dating back to 1840. This is a rare congenital disorder that creates what is called a cleft hand, giving the hand an appearance of uh, a claw. Basically, the fingers don't separate like they normally do when you're in the womb and they kind of just stay together. Um, so it, it, they're sort of webbed together. Uh, he would capitalize on this and began performing in traveling carnivals under the name lobster man. Now, although it is very rare, if one parent has this genetic predisposition for this, their children have a 50, 50 chance of being born with it. Of the three children, Grady and his wife, Edna had two were born with, um, the disorder, including Grady Jr., who, in addition to his hands also had his legs affected by it. He often would use a wheelchair, but he also used his arms to get around and became very strong. Uh, and that became one of his performance strengths. Like he used that strength, um, to impress, uh, Grady Jr. was born in Pittsburgh, and the family resided on the north side and really struggled to make ends meet on a carnival salary, um, carnival worker salary. Grady Jr. also suffered abuse and bullying by the other children, as well as adult adults. Like adults would literally run across the street, cower in fear. Some of the sort of more superstitious old women would like spit on him to ward <gasps> off the evil eye, like just awful stuff. So moving to Gibsonton was a, a welcome relief to him. Uh, real estate was cheap, and Grady Sr. was able to buy the family a home. And being in a town that was pretty much all carnival workers meant that Grady Jr. no longer suffered the bullying and stares that he once did. He had found this community that not only accepted him, but celebrated his differences. It wasn't long before he joined his father's act, taking on the stage name Lobster Boy. He quit school like at the age of seven and hit the road with his dad, traveling from town to town, performing as the Lobster Family. This act soon became the star attraction of the carnival they worked with. And Grady, Grady Jr. really became quite the performer. Like he really, he was like meant to perform on stage in some way. Now, back in Gibsonton, Grady was just like a normal kid. He wrestled, he played baseball. And as I mentioned, his arms had become so strong that he really excelled at wrestling. His arms were like pythons. They could squeeze and hold down. Uh, so he really was quite athletic and became really popular. Um, but he definitely had a lot of bitterness based on his early childhood, uh, really tormented him. And he had a lot of anger for the world who he felt didn't accept him. And he definitely had something to prove. His strength allowed him to sort of 
display a sadistic side, which was something that came out when he started drinking. And he started drinking at a a very young age with his parents. Like it was just kind of like they all drank. Um, Those who faced Grady's wrath said that getting hit by one of his arms was like being hit by a two by four. It was so powerful and strong. And then when they were knocked on the ground, he would headbutt his opponents and squeeze the neck out of like he could wrap his arm around their neck and literally almost choke them if he wasn't stopped so his favorite drink was seagram seven and coke and that's pretty much what it stayed like his whole life as he got older his drinking became almost a nightly thing but as mean as he was uh drunk sober he was completely charming and although he dropped out of school at age seven he was extremely intelligent and became quite the ladies man In 1959, he met Mary Teresa Herzog, and the pair quickly fell in love. Now, Teresa was born in 1938, and she had a pretty horrific childhood. She was sexually abused by her stepfather, like almost from the moment her mom married him. She found solace going to the carnival, and that that was something that came to town a few times a year, so she always looked forward to this. She wanted to become more involved, and she eventually got a job selling tickets whenever it came to town. When she was 18, she literally ran off and joined the circus, so so to speak. Like yeah. She joined the carnival right away and was like out of that fucking house. Now, after a short marriage to a violent and abusive carnival worker, Mary Teresa decided to take control of her life, leaving her husband and taking her young daughter, Deborah, out of the horrific situation. It was while selling tickets she caught the eye of Grady Stiles Jr., he, they were both working for the World of Mirth Carnival. Uh, she was a ticket taker, which was the bottom of the carnival hierarchy. And he was, th- he was like at the top. He was the star attraction. He got her a promotion and she became a ballet girl. A ballet girl is kind of like the carnival barker, but a sexy girl to get people to come to the show. So they right. draw the crowds to the box office and get them to pay and go in. It wasn't long before she became a performer in the sideshow. Her first gig was Blade Box Girl. And that is where the woman is in a box and seemingly being stabbed as swords are thrust into it from all angles. Soon after that, she took on another role, the Electrified Girl. And this was an illusion that had her in what appeared to be an electric chair. When the volts of electricity were hit, she would have an electric glow around her with lightning bolts seemingly leaping from hand to hand. Of course, afterwards, in a daze, she would rise from her chair unharmed to rapturous applause. So this was like, this was a sideshow act that was considered an illusion. Right. uh, And they had several of those type of things. Grady treated her like a queen, and this was something she had never experienced in her life. During the off-season, they lived together in Gibsonton, and Mary Teresa worked at a local shrimp factory in Tampa. (gasps) A shrimp factory? How exciting is that? And they were pretty happy for nine years, uh, which they lived together for nine years and eventually got married. uh, And that's when problems started happening. So maybe we'll take a break here and get back to the story. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. So Grady's drinking. It just becomes worse and worse and worse. And when he is drinking, he is just not the charming man who put Teresa on a pedestal. He is cruel and abusive. And he, I mean, he does things like, these are classic domestic violence uh, things, like making sure you never hit their face and only hitting their body so no one can see the damage you've done to the the victim. Um, They have two children, both of whom die of pneumonia as newborns. And they blame the drafty living conditions on the road for the infant's death. In 1963, their third child, Donna, is born. And she did not have uh, the disorder. And this actually made Grady extremely bitter. Like, he, he like, wanted it. I think he wanted uh, to have more performers. He just... He didn't like that it, she was like her mom. Like, it was that kind of stuff. His drinking worsened, and it wasn't unusual for Deborah and Donna to have to walk over his passed out body in the morning to get ready for school. Now, this actually did affect him, uh, seeing his kids kind of suffer like this initially. Um, he was desperate to be a better husband and father, and he really went to great effort to stop drinking at this point. But the family was traumatized by these years of his heavy drinking and abuse. The kids, even when he was not drinking, would be completely silent, like hoping not to irritate him or make him mad. And that's obviously in no way to live as a kid. So in 1969, Grady and Teresa have another daughter named Kathy, and she is born with ectrodactyly. 
Um, all the kids eventually are taken out of school to work at the carnivals. Um, the, the girls take tickets. They break down tents. Um, his daughter, Kathy, does start performing with him in the act. Uh, they pretty much do whatever needs to be done. Grady's semi-sobriety was very short-lived. He is soon back to drinking and beating not only his wife, but his children as oh. well now. His daughter, Donna, faced the majority of the beatings, and she speculates in the book that it was because she didn't have um, ectrodactyly, uh, and that that just made him more angry at her for some reason. Donna recalls vividly the night her parents separated. At this point in 1972, Grady's drinking began to affect his act, which had never happened before. He began slurring through his performances. He had a monologue um, that he would recite, which was pretty uh, common as part of the act. And sometimes he would like be so drunk that he would say, he would do like a shocking reveal. And he's like, and this was caused by incest. Oh. And that was, and everyone was like, uh, what the hell? Where did that come from? So that was like his latest reveal. Obviously, that is not the case. Um, but yeah, so he started doing things like this and warning viewers not to engage in incest or else this might happen. Jesus. Uh, yeah. So luckily, none of the flowers in the attic <laughs> characters <laughs> were there. Um, so after a performance, Mary Teresa and Grady, be- Grady began their nightly ritual of arguing. But this time when Grady flies into his rage, instead of beating Teresa, he throws $20 at her and says, get out of my face and take the kids with you. So she calls her friend who at the time was working in the sideshow as the world's smallest man. His name is Harry Glenn Newman. He, he takes Mary Teresa and her whole family, moves them in with his mother in Ohio and basically like saves her. Wow. So they live there for a while a pretty normal, happy life. Like she's just never been in this situation with a man who is truly caring and kind. Uh, Little did she know though, her ex Grady was in the process of filing for divorce without her knowledge. And he ends up getting a no contest divorce and complete custody of the children. (gasps) And she can't do anything about it at this point. So I, I don't know. I hope things like this have changed. You can't do this anymore, but she just, he was able to do this all without her signing off on any of it. So the kids are soon back with their abusive dad and he has a new um, woman, his wife named Barbara. Now, Mary, uh, Teresa and Harry eventually get married and they have a son, Harry Glenn Jr. in 1974. In 1976, Barbara and Grady also have a son, Grady Stiles III. He is born with ectrodactyly and he will also join the act one day. By this point, Grady has moved the whole family back to Pittsburgh But he wasn't done torturing Teresa yet. In Christmas of 76, Teresa is desperate to see her daughters and Grady finally agrees. Harry Glenn is suspicious that he's being so accommodating, but he agrees to go with his wife because she really wants to see her kids. Like she doesn't see them very often. They meet at a bar with her. She has a toddler with her. And of course, Grady's like, meet me at the bar. So they meet him at the bar and Grady gets drunk and they he's like let's go back to my place so as soon as they enter the apartment grady sits in his chair and pulls out a gun (gasps) uh he threatens the pair demanding Teresa sit by him on the sofa glenn obviously is like no like don't go there Teresa. just seconds after that happens the door bursts open and 
a 600-pound man named Paul Fishbow who worked with Grady in the car- Grady in the carnival as an attraction is there holding a rifle pointing it at Teresa and Glenn from the other angle. What? Yes. So he holds the rifle on Glenn and Glenn's toddler son who he's holding in his arms. Teresa goes sits on the couch next to Grady and Glenn has to watch Grady beat the shit out of Teresa on the couch while he has a gun held on him. That's uh, horrific. Yeah. It's horrific. And then they're finally let go, and Teresa never got to see her daughter. So he just did this whole thing to torture her, basically. In 1978, 15-year-old Donna, who at this point is like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, she's just biding her time to get out of her dad's house. She uh, Things really escalate for her as far as those feeling go, feelings go when she falls in love with an 18-year-old classmate named Jack Lane. Not Jack Lane. <laughs> Jack Lane. Uh, Donna actually runs away from home, and obviously Grady does not like that, and he threatens her every time she calls, saying that, um, telling her that she's going to regret it when he finds her, also threatening the life of Jack, saying he'll kill Jack when he finds him as well. Just days after um, these calls with Donna, he goes to a pawn shop and buys a gun. Now, Donna, I mean, she's in fear of her dad and she makes a fatal mistake thinking she, it would, it would be news that would encourage him to just let them be together. Uh, she also is trying to get him to sign permission to marry Jack because she's underage. She tells her dad that she's pregnant. She's not pregnant. This is a lie that she's just hoping will calm him down. It does anything but calm him down. He's silent on the phone with Donna uh, and agrees to sign the paper. Now, Donna is thrilled. She can't believe her luck. Her and Jack are excited about the um, upcoming wedding. They go to the courthouse, they get their marriage license, and they plan their wedding date for September 28th, 1978. On September 27th, the happy couple are running errands for their upcoming nuptials. And Grady is obviously pounding booze at the at the bar that's sort of below his apartment building. By the time he leaves the bar that day, he has consumed 12 whiskey doubles. Dude. Uh, that's a lot and would have most people literally blacked out on the floor. Yeah. Obviously, he has a high tolerance, but that's still a lot of alcohol. Yeah. Um, he arrives home as Donna, Jack, and Kathy are there, and they're going off to buy food for the reception, and their plan for the reception food is lots of potato chips, Aww. which is like the most 15-year-old <laughs> like thing ever. Aww. It just broke my heart. I was like, that's actually not a bad idea. If you don't have a lot of money, like get a bunch of chips. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I like, hope they at least had dip. Uh, I don't know. Um, so Grady gets Donna to stay behind. And the minute the Kathy and Jack leave, he starts begging her not to marry Jack. He's like, he's not good enough for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's very drunk, as I mentioned. Um, when the other people come back from the chip buying, he pretends that his wheelchair has been stolen. And he sends his daughters out to find it. He is finally alone with Jack now uh, at this point. And while the girls are literally searching in the bushes for this stolen wheelchair, they hear shots fired. (gasps) Donna and Kathy run back to the apartment and find Jack mortally wounded by a gunshot wound. When the cops arrive, Grady looks at them and says, take me, I'm ready. So he basically just admits to doing it. This kid, this is a kid, right? He's 18 years old and he's still in high school. Like, you know what I mean? Dude. So... While being questioned, Grady tells a different story. He tells the story of an adult man who took his 
child, his good girl's virginity. He corrupted her. He also claims that while he was alone with Jack, Jack taunted him and his disability, made fun of him, said he was going to throw him out of his wheelchair and was laughing in his face and all of this stuff. And in fact, said that his whole family treated him like shit and made fun of him. Uh, none of this is true. He is the abuser in, in this household. Right. Um, and Jack did not do this. He was like a good kid. He's not a bad guy. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Um, he said that Grady said that he approached Jack and pull, he pulled the gun out and shot him. So it was self-defense. Now police did feel sympathy for him, but obviously he bought the gun before there was all the threats he had uh, lobbed at Donna and Jack before this. So it was very premeditated in their mind, even though they felt sympathy for him. He was eventually charged with first degree murder, which could lead to the death penalty in uh, the state of Pennsylvania. Now, Grady gets a defense attorney who knew that their only option was self-defense. And he was also on board with Grady's idea to play up the sympathy, um, selling himself as a helpless victim of abuse from this family who taunted and bullied him his whole life. His attorney was actually like interviewed for this book after the fact, and he does not like Grady. Really? Uh, no. He said that he was flat and emotionless, like while they were like doing their interviews and going over testimony and, and stuff like that to get his story straight, Grady would just describe the murder like very nonchalantly, emotionlessly. And that the, the, um, sorry, the defense attorney said he only got super animated and pumped up when he would talk about his sexual prowess and all the women he fucked, including he loved to tell the attorney that all of his conquests wanted to be fucked with his hand. And that was something he reveled in telling this defense attorney. Is the attorney like, sir, <laughs> sir, sir, that's not part of our defense. No, he's like, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> like, it was like the ultimate, like, right. what do you... What does that have to do with any of this? Yeah, so he... He was like, I need to make sure the jury never sees the real Grady right. because he's trying to sell himself as this victim and he's anything but like, this is a confident guy. Uh, he's strong. He has all the power and it's very obvious when you see the real Grady that that's who he is. Now the prosecution's star witness was Donna. She's a great witness and she really laid out everything that happened in a very believable way. And the defense put on an interesting defense, to say the least. In addition to Paul Fishbach, the 600-pound man was back to give a character defense witness. Uh, other people from the sideshow came in to testify in Grady's defense. Um, people brought on stand included the bearded lady and another performer who built himself as the smallest man in the world, not the, uh, not the husband of Teresa. So obviously this is a very unusual courtroom scene with all of these witnesses. Grady goes on the stand to testify himself and it's described by his defense attorney as an Oscar winning performance. Uh, it's full of emotion and tears. He's just a devoted dad trying to protect his precious daughter. And his own lawyer would say later that um, he's a sick man. Yeah. In his opinion, watching this was just like, this guy's sick. Now, the jury took three hours to come back with a verdict, guilty of third-degree murder, which is basically voluntary manslaughter. He got 15 years probation in house arrest uh, because... The judge was like, there's no prison equipped to house him and care for him. So we're just going to give him probation for killing this guy in cold blood. Dude. That's it. Wow. And the house arrest was like nothing. It was short. Like the probation was long, but who cares, right? Yeah. Um. So, and then what did he do to show thanks to his attorney? 
He skipped town and never paid him his $14,000 fee, instead using it to start up his own sideshow so he no longer had to work for anyone else and he would be the boss of what was called uh, a 10 in one, which is 10 acts under one roof. So you paid one fee and you got 10 acts uh, to see. For the majority of the 80s, the Styles and Newman families really struggled financially. Uh, Teresa's husband, Glenn, had a severe injury after he fell at work. He actually had to go back to the carnival circuit to make money. And as I mentioned earlier, everyone describes Glenn as an incredibly kind man. Uh, but Teresa was getting bored. She was growing restless with this situation. She did not like this normal life that she had with Glenn, and the couple eventually divorced. She was still in love with Grady. <gasps> oh, no. So her daughter, when she revealed this to her daughter, Donna, Donna was furious. Right. She's like, what are you fucking doing? But Teresa really believed Grady had changed. He had stopped drinking, which, if that was true, would be a major uh, accomplishment for him. And, and that was when his bad behavior happened. So soon Grady is divorced from Barbara. He's back in Gibsonton. And Teresa moves to a central Florida town called Okeechobee. It wasn't long before Grady buys Mary Teresa a mobile home in Gibsonton, and the romance is rekindled. Okeechobee? Yeah. That's where part of the Cotton Club story took place, right? Maybe, because I definitely remember talking about that town because I was obsessed with it as a child. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Uh, No, that's okay. We've definitely mentioned it before. Now, at this point, even Donna is kind of on board. Uh, She sees that Grady has changed, his drinking has stopped, and that has improved his behavior. Um, So he's the charismatic and charming man that in the past only his paying customers really got to enjoy. Teresa and Grady remarry with their children's blessing. But a few months after the, the marriage, Grady is back at the local watering hole. And with the return of booze, uh, the beatings return as well. Now, Donna at this point is like, okay, you made a mistake. We all fucked up. Like, leave him now before this thing escalates. But at this point, Teresa is like, no, he needs someone to care for him. And I need to be this person. Okay. In April of 1992, Grady is still performing on the carnival circuit and as I mentioned at the top of this episode, by this point, it has really fallen out of favor. Like I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. First of all, can I just say, I maybe I'm thinking of the dude's dad, but for some reason, I thought this was like a very old timey story. I thought it was more like 50s, 60s. Me too. I didn't realize it went into the 90s. Me too. Uh, but he's just he'd been doing it since seven years old. So right. it just I don't know. But yeah, I was when I was researching, and I was like, wait, this went into the 90s. <laughs> Like, I literally was like, I thought it ended in the 70s or something. I didn't something. even know they still had sideshows in the 90s. Uh, well, yeah. I know. It's shocking. Now, definitely shifted somewhat. Right. Right? So the acts weren't um, like they had been. It was a lot more. So he was doing this 10 in 1, and all of his family at this point are have acts. Donna and her new husband, Joe, had something that was called a gorilla girl illusion, where Donna, like this beautiful woman would mysteriously turn into a gorilla before the audience's eyes. So it must've had some kind of light and illusion. Daughter Kathy ran an animal oddities exhibit, which had things like two headed raccoons. So this is all like, um, taxidermy kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, shrunken animal heads, etc. They had acts that included the human pin cushion, snake charmers, sword swallowers, uh, stuff like that. So it yeah. was more stuff like that. And, and young Glenn, who is, uh, Teresa's son, 
uh, he did a blockhead act. And that, as I mentioned earlier, is where you literally like nail uh, things into your nostril and do stuff like that. I know. So, of course, um, the star attraction is still Grady. He's still performing his Lobster Boy act and now with his son, Grady III. So I was shocked. This tour that happens in 1992, um, they actually have a big show at the Nassau Coliseum in, uh, on Long Island. Oh, So I was like, when I saw that, I was like, so this was going to Long Island? <laughs> like, and this is a huge location. This is right. where like the Islanders plays. This isn't some rinky-dink hole in the wall or whatever. This is a huge location. You could have gone to that when you were young. I could have gone to it. And you know what? I did go to carnivals on Long Island growing up. I don't remember that kind of stuff. I remember the rides that were kind of scary. <laughs> we're like, are these safe? Right. Like, I mean, I loved, I loved going to carnivals. There's Me all too. the food. Uh, and I do remember some kind of sideshow acts like this with the performers, like the, the fire swal- swallowing right? Uh, and the tattoos and piercing things. Uh, I loved carnivals when I was a kid. Oh, me too. It I was, was like the funnest thing ever. I was obsessed with them, especially one of the like aspects I loved about going to carnivals was everyone from all the like other surrounding counties would show up. So you just see people you'd like never seen before. Oh, totally. It was just such a like interesting like people watching and also like... Um, like it was just fun as hell. You just like, well, cause like I remember the first time going was like junior high that age kind yeah. of, and just being like, what? <laughs> like Just yeah. kind of like causing trouble and like seeing what was going down and like, like, yeah, by the time I got to like middle school and like early high school, going to the carnival with my friends and like wearing a crop top yeah. and like looking hot, it's like July and just the rides were like extra scary because you're like, <sighs> I literally could die on this. <laughs> like, yeah, I loved, I loved the zipper. I loved the tilt a whirl. Is that the one where you stick to the walls and the floor drops? No, that's the. I did not like the gravitron. I like that one, like, <laughs> which I, is surprising because I do get sick on those, but I didn't get sick on that one. No, I was like not into the gravitron, but I really liked the zipper, which was the one where like you're in that like oblong thing and it like. <laughs> There's like a track that goes around and yeah. then the whole flip thing is like you're flipping upside yeah. down like three different What's ways. What's the one that's like swinging and you're like in a little cocoon and it's sort of like turning? It's like on the end of a stick. Oh. I can't remember. Maybe you're thinking of the zipper. Maybe, but the it didn't have like a, stick-like. Yeah, maybe. I'll show you a picture of it. Uh, yeah, there were so many rides that were fucking fun. I would always like when I was younger and I'd like go with my mom, I'd be like, let's go on the Sizzler. Let's go on the Sizzler. And she's like, no, because it's, it's the kind of <laughs> ride that makes your parents sick. It's yes. the one that spins several different oh, ways and yeah, it yeah, goes yeah. faster and faster. <laughs> and then there was one that was like the Polar there was like the Polar Bear Express. I know it wasn't called that. Wait, that's a movie. Well, the thing it I called, love- <laughs> it was it was called something, but it was like it just like went around and around on a track. And I remember I loved. Like, was that this- the one that was kind of cold? Yeah, or something. But this one I really liked because I just remember being like very very young, like in the early nineties, and they played like whatever the latest rap music was on that one. (laughs) Wait, that's what I was thinking about the Gravitron because the music was always very funny, like metal kind of music or something. (laughs) See, maybe that's why I liked this weird, like, uh, like, I don't remember. It was like kind of like a polar bear, not polar bear theme, but like a, 
I don't know. Like there a, was, there was a abominable snow, snowman. It was some kind of snow theme. It's like really hard to describe, but I just remember that one. That one had the rap music and the and the gravitron was like definitely the heavy metal. <laughs> it was music. the heavy metal. It was so funny. And you'd pass by it, and it would be like excellent. <laughs> But all the people who worked there loved it. Oh, my God. I mean, just, oh, and not not even forgetting my other favorite part of going to the carnival was the food. Oh, shit. I mean, just that smell. The funnel cake? I wish I could get a candle. I know this is gross, but I wish I could get a candle of carnival smell. It's... I agree. The food is really fun. We should go to the um, LA County Fair. Yeah, we you should. You know what I really want to do is go to the craft section where the table settings are. <laughs> like, I'm obsessed with the table setting Right, that's area. what you do when you're older. <laughs> you go to well, the- I can't go on the spinning rides anymore no. like I used to. Like, they get me sick now. I won't go on the rides with you, but let, we can do, like, the petting zoo. Yeah, and I like don't... Eat- Eat the eating stuff. is fun, um, right. but anyway, I think that's coming up sometime soon. I thought it already happened. I thought it, I think it's the OC fair right now. The OC fair is right now, but I think I think is either LA? the Ventura and the LA might be All in right, September. Well, we'll go to one of those. Okay. okay, I actually like the Ventura one because it's a little more low key. I haven't been to uh, that one. Anyway, so yeah, uh, so this was like at big stadiums, so it had all these rides and then the attractions right. and food and etc. Um, but the family strife. Uh, was beginning to wear um, on everybody. The carnival tour was traveling that summer. Um, Eventually, Grady kicks Joe and Donna and the Gorilla Girl act out of the show because they were pissing him off too much. Yeah. Um, Glenn, his stepson, got pissed um, because he had hired this new ballet man. Uh, This was a guy named Merman the Magician. And, And Grady Jr. really started relying on this guy uh, he especially exploded, Glenn especially got pissed when um, Merman the Magician, who got a percentage of the ticket box, that was like how he earned his money, he accused Teresa of stealing from the till. <gasps> and this caused a huge um, explosion of anger from the whole family. In late July, Teresa tells daughter Kathy that she's had it with Grady's abuse and wants him dead. The rest of the tour is also ends up being a bust because there's a lot of heavy rain in August and it kind of puts an early end to the travel traveling carnival season. Grady makes plans to change things up the following season. Uh, and his number one change is to hire his whole fucking annoying family. He is pissed at all of them and kind of blames them for everything. And he's like, me and you, Merman, we're going to make it happen. Yeah. Summer of 93, it's on. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> he's... He's convinced they're dragging him down and getting his head out of the game. He needs to fucking focus. How He's like 60. <laughs> he's really old. Um, but little did Grady know, that was his last carnival season. Now, on November 29th, 1992, four shots ring out in the night at the Gibsonton trailer park where Grady Stiles Jr. lived. A carnival worker named Marco Eno ran out and saw a young man in a leather jacket run by. He also saw Glenn Jr. run out of his half-sister Kathy's trailer, followed by Teresa, who immediately was like, thought the, the shots seemed like they came from Grady's trailer. So she like says that. Marco agrees to go in the trailer and check things out. When he goes in, he sees Grady in front of the TV in his lazy boy recliner. He is slumped over, his face almost completely in his lap, and there is a lot of blood. So he yells to call 911 and Wait, Grady does? Marco. Oh, Marco. I'm Marco, sorry. Marco, that's okay. Marco yells to call 911 and he is screaming that Grady has been shot. So 
Grady's dead. Right. Like he dies probably instantly. And the detectives arrive to find him exactly as he was when Marco found him. There are no signs of robbery. They see his wallet. Uh, He doesn't have many other valuables, but his wallet is right there. So that's kind of sus to them. They also discover that Grady the third was asleep in his room when the murder happened and was completely like not woken up or bothered at all. And is Grady the third an adult by now? No, he's like 14. He was born in 1978. He's still very young. So he's a young, yeah, I mean, he's a young teen. They almost immediately notice that Grady the third doesn't even seem too upset upon hearing that his dad was just shot in cold blood in the next room. Uh, detectives interview Mary Teresa. Uh, she said the family had watched a movie that night. She had rented Ruby starring Danny Aiello as oh. Jack Ruby. Oh. <laughs> that was the movie they rented. And about 11, she went to her daughter's trailer uh, with her son, Glenn, um, and that they were in the back of the trailer when they heard these gunshots uh, ring out. Detectives asked Teresa if she knew of anyone who wanted her husband dead, and she replied, no, sir, I don't. Now, detectives were going from interview to interview to interview, like basically everyone in this trailer park, and no information is coming out, which kind of like bothers lead detective Michael Willette. The next day, he is told that he should go visit Chuck Osick, who is the owner of the Showtown USA local bar. Now, Chuck is a ex-carnival worker, kind of who made good. He sets up this bar in Gibsonton, and he kind of makes a lot of money because yeah. these guys drank a lot. He's actually in um, the City Confidential oh. uh, being interviewed a lot. Um, so if you want to see that episode and see Chuck, you can check it out. Like this bar is like a total dive shithole. Right. It's where everyone goes to lie about how much money they made, how much it's like that kind of tall tale type bar. As he's driving around, he really gets, takes in this area, this local area. So obviously Gibson 10 is very economically depressed. Um, it's almost like the modern times have completely passed it by. There's no fast food change. There's no like big, uh, chain stores at all, which I'm sure it's like, we're so used to seeing them. It does stand out when you're kind of in an area where it doesn't, there's a local flea market. That's basically just a sad rack of used clothes. Like Mm -hmm. it's not a big flea market. And as I mentioned before, he's driving past these homes, seeing circus animals and rides. It's just a very, uh, unusual area. And he's from the bigger city who probably has never passed by there. This cop, this cop. Yeah. So before, and it's also one of those things, like he gets a little into it thing. It's like, it's a very isolated community. Like there's no reason to be there unless you live there. Right. So before going to this bar showtime, they once again interview Marco Eno and he brings up, this time he does bring up a little bit more of um, his, Grady's temper and his drinking. Uh, So that's sort of a new interesting thing for the cops. This is confirmed more when they finally do talk to Chuck Osek. He's like, yeah, he's like a regular. Um, But the lack of emotion is also something this detective is starting to really notice. Like no one seems sad that this guy is gone. He goes back to interview Teresa again, digging more into why she and Glenn left right before Grady was shot. Like that's kind of suspicious. So nothing comes out of any of these follow-up interviews as well. And he, he kind of realizes that it's like you know, similar to what cops might deal with in a disadvantaged community that are very distrustful of law enforcement. Like it has that same vibe to him. And I'm sure that's true. The carnival community is probably also very distrustful of law enforcement just from traveling around the country. I'm sure they get harassed all the time as well. 
So they're not giving up any info. Like yeah. they're protecting their own as well. Now it's not, uh, it, like I mentioned earlier, when he finally meets Chuck, a little more stuff starts coming out about how this guy is basically a piece of shit right. and everyone kind of hates him. It kind of reminded me of that guy we did a story on. The one, Patreon. Yeah. The one that everyone in town hated and he finally gets killed and everyone's like, I didn't say anything. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> so the detectives decide to bring Glenn Jr. Uh, into the police station, telling him that they want him to take a lie detector test. And he agrees. Now, Glenn is like often described in this book and sometimes in the, the documentary I saw, the, the City Confidential, as not being like the brightest uh, guy. So some people think it was unfair that they kind of tricked him to come in for this lie detector test, but he basically waives all his rights and agrees to do this. And he's an adult at this time. He's not underage. Um, and he takes this lie detector test and is found to be deceptive. Now this really scares someone like uh, Glenn. He wasn't prepared to fail this test. Right. And they obviously like make him feel like something bad has happened. Of course, yeah. So when confronted with this information, he basically agrees to waive his rights and be formally interviewed and kind of confess everything. So he confesses that after his mom was beat by Grady and threatened to kill her uh, numerous times in the past uh, few months, he he starts searching for someone to, to kill his father. He meets a guy named Chris Wyant, who is a friend of a friend's. He is very interested in meeting Chris because he knows Chris has a background and is kind of like a juvenile delinquent. So he's done some petty crimes. Uh, and I think he also brags about doing bigger things. So uh, Glenn is like, oh, let me meet this guy. Mm-hmm. Very quickly after meeting, a plot begins to hatch. Eventually, Chris agrees to kill Grady for $1,500 which just happens to be the amount of money Teresa has stolen from the till. She was stealing money all summer long to save up for this uh, potential murder. Yes. So shortly after meeting, um, this meeting happens, Chris goes to buy a gun from a friend of a friend. Weeks go by and Chris hasn't done done anything yet. So like Glenn is like, what's going on? Meanwhile, Grady's abuse is worsening. Glenn Jr. is pissed. He's like, because he had already paid Chris. So he's like, wait, is this guy scamming me? He finally confronts him on the morning of November 29th. And he demands that it be done that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he threatens him. He threatens him if he doesn't do it. He's like, I'll call the cops and say that you stole this money from my mom. Right. Uh, and we'll, you'll be screwed. Now, that night, Chris knocks on Glenn's window in the trailer. And he's like, I'm going to do it around 11. I mean, these are not the, <laughs> the most competent criminals. So that's why him and Teresa decide that they're going to leave the trailer right before 11. So they leave Grady to finish Ruby alone. Yeah. Now, when Glenn hears the shots, he sees Chris run by and he's like, it's done. Like, he's done the job. So Glenn confesses this to the detectives. They go back to Gibsonton and pick up Mary Teresa. She quickly confesses, telling the cops about the abuse she had suffered over the years as well as the constant death threats. And she also makes it clear that it was her, uh, that her son Glenn has not, like she obviously takes the the fall for Glenn, but they're not buying it. They arrest them all, including Chris Wyant. On November 30th, Mary Teresa, Glenn, and Chris are all charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. The state's attorney um, office decides not to seek the death penalty in their upcoming trial. So Teresa gets... 
a man named Arnold Levine, who was a very controversial defense attorney in the area to represent her. He agrees to take the case pro bono because he's kind of counting that there's going to be extensive media coverage. And he is the type of lawyer that wants to get that. He wants to be on TV. He's that guy. So uh, he has an interesting defense uh, strategy that he presents to Teresa, and that is battered wife syndrome. Now, this is something that obviously has been has been used before successfully, but yes. never in a murder for hire. It's always the woman killing the husband or boyfriend claiming this defense. Right. Uh, so this had never been tried in a murder case. Uh, a murder for hire case in Florida before it had been tried other times in the country three times and all of them had failed. So it's definitely a risky, uh, a risky thing to do, but they didn't really have that many options. Right. So after a bungled attempt to try all three of them together, they are eventually um, tried separately. Obviously Chris Wyant, the contract killer has the least amount of sympathy going into trial because right. he didn't even suffer all the abuse that the other two supposedly have suffered. Um, but the jury ends up deliberating way longer than anyone expects. Uh, and they really wanted options for lesser charges for him. Oh. So he eventually gets convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and murder in the second degree, which means instead of getting the potential life sentence, he could be out in 10 to 15 years. Now? I think he ends up getting or 20. When he gets con- when he gets- after when he gets sentenced. I think he ends up getting like... 27 years on yeah. both counts. Right. But he's out in 2009. Okay. So whatever that is. Teresa's trial is obviously kind of the main event, right? right. Uh, and this keeps getting delayed and eventually starts in July of 1994. She testifies, I'm sorry, her ex-husband, Glenn, Harry Glenn, uh, testifies about Grady's abuse and threats. He's a very compelling witness. Mary Teresa takes the stand. And <laughs> this was like shocking to me because it's so rude. The court, she like at, at some point is being questioned and they're like, how old is, are you? And she says 56. And the courtroom is like, because <gasps> she looks way older. <laughs> oh my God. They're like, she looked 10 years older. Like that was, they, and the, yeah. the, the thing is like, she has lived such a hard life of abuse. Like, yeah, she doesn't look her best. Like, right. But it was just like so shocking that people actually gasped so oh. audibly in court that it was in the news stories. Oh it's kind of like what we talk about with those old cases in oh. like the 20s when they're just so fucking rude oh, in the coverage. They're so rude in the coverage. But in a way, this actually helps her because it sort of bolsters her accusations about how she was treated. Right. Like she looks like she's fucking been through it. Yeah. Um, and this is a woman at the end of her rope who saw no way out. She gives harrowing testimony of, of this near lifetime of abuse at Grady's hands. Well, and she had also gone to the cops mm. Yeah. Like the law enforcement had been involved many, many times in the past, as well as this guy was convicted yeah. of, of another murder and got off. Right. Now, she tells a horrible, like horrifying story um, about one incident of abuse where he literally pulls her IUD out by hand <gasps> and she's left bleeding and hospitalized. So he is like extra sick. sick. Uh, so, but Levine obviously has to prove that. Uh, Teresa felt the threat on her life was imminent. Like it's right. not enough that she's just in this abusive relationship. So she testifies about how she actually filled out her will and gave it to her daughter Kathy. That's how sure something was going. She was that something was going to happen. Um, she leaves the stand basically in a state of collapse and crying. Her testimony is very powerful because uh, it's true. Yeah. Um, now 
Levine has another trick up his sleeve. He also has a video of what appears to be Grady Jr. wrestling his young son, Grady III. Now, this video has no sound, so Grady III has to testify to what is happening in the video. He testifies that what started out as an innocent little rumble between father and son, like some horseplay, turned into him basically begging for his father to stop saying he couldn't breathe while his father is kind of laughing in this video. And that makes the video even more like horrifying to watch, to see him smiling as his young son is basically saying he's gasping for air. He goes on to testify to more abuse at the hands of his dad. Now a shocking turn of events happens in the courtroom. The presiding judge, Judge Grayville, gets diagnosed with pneumonia, possibly TB. What? And is taken off the case and everyone has to get tested for TB. Oh no. Yeah. So luckily this takes just a few days and they don't, they don't stop the trial. They just put a new judge on the case and no one else comes down uh, with TB. Then there's another shocking development. The videotape of Grady the third being brutalized as bad, the one with no sound. Well, another version is found and turned into prosecutors. This one has sound. <gasps> so the sound reveals that it wasn't the video of a child in pain, but it's a family having fun. There's playful banter happening during this fight. And it's, it is just light sparring between a father and son. And everyone in the video, including Grady the third, is just laughing in it. And like, Dad, they're all like goofing off and playing around in this video. It's another copy? It's the same video, but with sound. Oh, boy. So this was like the Perry Mason moment in, in the courtroom. Yeah. Like everyone is like shocked. Levine is furious. His case has completely crumbled. The jury is furious. They feel like they were lied to and duped by this attorney. And he clearly released it without the sound, knowing that it would appear worse. Like, he did that. Now, the person who turned this tape in is Fred Rosen, the author of the book I read. What? (laughs) He was in the jury. He was there every day covering the case for a local newspaper, eventually hoping to write a book on it. He came, he got the tape from Arnie by mistake. Wait. Arnie is the defense attorney. wait a minute. So this is like... (laughs) Yeah. He, he basically fucked himself and his client. This is like the Alex Jones trial. Exactly. That's what I was thinking about. I was like, this is another like Perry Mason, like, oh shit. So he couldn't even really be mad because he fucking did it. Like, right. And, and Fred had no choice but to turn it in because it was evidence. Uh, so this was a shocking moment when this tape gets played in the courtroom. Fuck, man. Um, so another bad blow to the defense's case is that it it is revealed that Grady's blood alcohol content is like negligible. He was not drunk the night he died. So there was no violence or drunken rage that was happening that night, at least like uh, that would have bolstered maybe her case more. Yeah. So what had seemed like a slam dunk defense was basically in the toilet at this point. Mary Teresa was eventually found guilty of conspiracy and guilty of manslaughter. So the family is obviously devastated. Levine unapologetically declares the verdict unjust, saying Grady deserved to be killed, like on the front steps of the courthouse. Yeah. Uh, In August of 94, the last co-conspirator, Glenn uh, Newman Jr., is set to be trialed. He's offered a plea deal. Um, He's offered, you plead guilty to the same charges your mother um, just was convicted of, and you'll receive the same sentence, which was 12 years behind bars. He turns it down, choosing to go to trial instead, and that backfires big time. He ends up being convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy and receives a life sentence. Fuck. Totally fucked. Now, 
Uh, Mary was released in 2000. She went back to living in Gibsonton. Chris Wyant also was released from jail in 2009. Both of these people are kind of under the radar. No one really knows where they are at this point. And sadly, Harry Newman uh, died in prison in 2014, and I couldn't figure out or find out why or what happened. Harry Glenn. Harry Glenn, yeah. Yeah. So there was an interview I found in the Huffington Post. There was an AMC show called Freak Show. I have no idea what it was about, and I couldn't find it. But Gary, I'm sorry, Grady Styles III was interviewed in this thing, and he really defends um, Teresa, Mary Teresa, his stepmother. Uh, he says that what actually happened was his um, mom, he calls her his mom, and dad got into a fight. His mom, he said, made a comment that something needed to be done. His brother overheard that and went to a neighborhood kid and told him that something had to be done. And he, in his opinion, his brother meant like scaring the dad or beating him up or something that uh, made him would make him realize he was going to lose his family if he didn't uh, change. Yeah. And basically saying Chris misunderstood and shut because Chris is young. He's like 18 too. Yeah. Like these are young people. The, the hitman. The hitman. So they're basically saying it was a misunderstanding and Chris killed him when they really just wanted him to scare Grady. Right. He also said in this interview, I'm not a fan of my dad as a person. He was racist, abusive. And when I cried, he'd say things like, I'll give you a reason to cry. He said, there is one thing he wishes he could say to his father. Thank you for showing me who not to be. And maybe you can appreciate who I became because of that. And he ended his statement with, you were a drunken bastard, but you were my dad. <laughs> just Fuck. Like that is so tragic. <laughs> it's just so... I mean, there's so many elements in the story where I kind of relate. It's like, yeah, you you get these sad lessons from having an awful parent, but it right. shouldn't have to be that way. No, There's other ways to learn how no, to be a good person. It like, shouldn't have to be that way. And it's just way. everyone's life is just fucked up because of this guy's anger and his drinking. You know what I mean? It's just sad. Uh, yeah, it's really devastating. Man. So that's the story of Grady Styles Jr. I'm really... Uh, glad we got to tell this story. Like I said, I think this is a story we both thought about telling and some figuring out how to tell this story on this show because it's not like directly Hollywood related, but it definitely, there is obviously a big Hollywood connection to this. So I'm really glad we got to tell this story today and you did such a good job, Desi. Thank you. Okay, we're going to record our after show, which is available at the $5 tier on our Patreon also, our new merch store is open. Yeah. HollywoodCrimeScene.com will take you there. And we currently have like four items up for sale with two separate designs. The se- second design is available only on a mug because I don't know how many people want that on a shirt. Maybe they do. <laughs> maybe well, a tank top. Maybe a tank top. <laughs> I was thinking of putting strong load on socks. It could be funny on a tote bag. No, uh, <laughs> I think it should be on socks. Yeah, I like, think it could work. Because then you could jerk off into that sock. Oh, damn. I didn't think about that. That's why we should put it on socks. <laughs> um, oh, the okay. tote bag might work. Anyway, more designs are coming soon. Yeah. But we currently have some items available if you want to buy merch at our new merch store, HollywoodCrimeScene.com. Bye. Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.